This episode of Manage Smarter is presented by Sales Fuel Consulting, leading experts for assessing and transforming management, sales, culture, and team performance. Learn more at salesfuel.com. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. It's the Manage Smarter Podcast, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. And today we're going to be talking about finances. Finances not only for managers, but specifically relating to women. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Audrey Strong. I'm the Vice President of Communications here at SalesFuel. And I'm Celie Smith. I'm the President and CEO of SalesFuel. What better way to spend a little bit of time with KT Thomas? She is the founder of New Day Solutions, a financial advisory firm in New Hampshire. Hi, KT. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. She's been running a successful growth-oriented firm for more than 25 years. Also the author, you got to get this book, of The Hardworking Woman's Guide to Money. And she's got a podcast as well, and she's also a C-suiter. Her podcast is called KT's Money Matters. KT, an avid triathlete. Boy, I wish I could do that. Ooh, yeah. Also, though, notably a stroke survivor. And you say, KT, that the stress of career and money can be a very bad combo for your health. Absolutely. Right. So you wrote the book for women and you have some very specific reasons why you did that. Can you talk about that? Let's start right there. Yeah. So the first thing I'd say to you is I wrote it for women first because they need it the most. They, uh, you know, when I think about the average woman works a a shorter career, makes about 80 cents on a dollar compared to a man, has time out of the workforce for children, because we still haven't figured out how to get men pregnant yet. And as a result, when we get into retirement, the next thing that happens is that we live about seven years longer than men. So we have less ability to save, less income to save with, and we're going to live longer. Interesting. It's all the salads you guys eat. It is all the salad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, do you find, so I was telling you, Katie, that my mom had some cursory conversations with me. They were kind of one-offs, um, not super in-depth. Um, do you find that most professional women have somebody that somewhat guides them, or is it a rarity to have somebody who will really mentor you as a young person entering the workforce or even midlife if you made some mistakes? You know, I, have, I actually have been very fortunate in the mentor of my life plan. I mean, I'm in an industry that was, you know, 90% male dominated. So I used to say, you know, I live in the world of white guys with ties. Mm. And, you know, financial services is very, very white and predominantly male. And over the last 25 years, there have been, you know, once in a while, you see somebody of color. And then there are more women who have had more success in the industry. But I was very fortunate that there weren't that many women in the business, but Women were very good to me when I first came in. You know, I had a couple people really just kind of grab me young in my career and help me along the way get started. What are some of the best ways to talk to women about money management as opposed to talking to men? I mean, how, how do they receive information differently or how can you make an impact there uh, by, by talking differently? You know, I really appreciate that question. I think that men tend to be more direct. I can just say to them, hey, listen, we need to do this, this, and this. Audrey does it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I find that women tend to want to have more understanding of the why, even if it's, you know, even if it's a complex term and maybe they're not going to kind of rein in on all the muddy little details, 
They want to understand more about how this fits into their other decisions. Mm. So one of the things that uh, from my background and years as, uh, as a professional is my mom said, uh, you're going to work your whole life regardless of who you marry because you always need to be able to take care of yourself. That seems to be a very female-specific message. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I, I was always the woman that was going to work. I really had always wanted to be the career person. I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be a mother. I certainly was sure that I didn't want to be the person that stayed at home. I felt like, you know, child of the 60s that I was going to, you know, I wanted to light the world on fire and be an independent, successful woman because in my family, you know, we grew up worrying about money. And one of the things that I decided along right at the very beginning was I wanted to have a little bit more control over my destiny so that I didn't have to worry as much. I could do things to impact that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Lee. Oh, so let's say that uh, a woman, an executive woman has, has worked very hard. She gets that promotion to become a manager or she's a manager and she gets the promotion in, in leadership. Then all of a sudden now she's got more money than she had before. What's the number one mistake or the first mistake that they tend, tend to make when they, uh, when, when they come into more money because they've earned it? So part of what I think about is the higher you go up the food chain, the more sophisticated the benefit planning becomes and the less ready you are to understand how to apply that. So things like how to really understand and value your full economic package with your employer, how to map out how and when and why you would execute stock options, how to think about increasing your savings to take advantage of it before it just gets kind of sucked in your income stream. And then what I find is my most successful executives tend to like to be liability light, not Mm -hmm. no liability but liability light because mm-hmm. it gives them the most flexibility if they want to change jobs or they want to think about pulling back or they want to maybe try their side hustle, something self-employment, that they want to be able to have the liquidity piece. And I think that people that have never had liquidity don't really understand why they need it. And then they just tend to let it go into the income stream. So how to capture that money from the you know, lifestyle creep. Are you finding that more companies today are offering financial planning benefits? And if so, are they adequate for today's executive woman? So I think more companies on the executive level are offering more financial planning, but that level of financial planning tends to be, for the most part, really um, written by lawyers for lawyers. Mm. So it tends to be very... You could do A, B, and C, but you really should see your own help. You could do X, Y, and Z, but you really should see your own person. So it's a good educational kind of broad view, but it certainly never rises to the standard of advice. In fact, corporations look to avoid being the advice provider. They'll put that disclaimer right in there too. Yeah, there's a certain amount of we could get sued. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talk a little bit, I I love, uh, if you go to Amazon, everybody, and you look at the reviews for the book, people are giving this to their nieces in college. I mean, obviously, the younger that you educate yourself on this, the more likely you are to avoid mistakes. But it's a book that covers everything from first entering the job force through retirement planning, which is what makes it so great, KT. Um, I guess my question is, you know, for younger people coming in, even on subjects of marriages and first jobs, you're saying, if you're going to get married, get a prenup. And if you're starting your first job, ask a lot of questions about benefits. Can you talk a little bit about the more get out ahead of mistakes phase of life for professional women? 
Absolutely. One of the things women do is we, we over and over again underprice ourselves in the market. We are actually, as a gender, less willing to just ask for what we want. And so, you know, so my, my uh, daughter is looking, you know, interviewing for a job and getting ready to change after having been with a company for a few years. And I said to her, you know, of course she was raised by me. Did you go on Glassdoor and did you look at what a competitive salary is for the kind of work that you do? Have you updated your LinkedIn profile? How are you deciding to apply? Has anybody looked at your resume? Are you writing it yourself or are you passing it out? And she looked at me and kind of rolled her eyes and said, yeah, 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 I get it. But what I'll say to you is that there's a big disconnect, right, between women and, frankly, employees coming into the workforce and what they think matters and what hiring agents are looking for and what they think matters. And part of it is just settling into what you think you need to make in order to make that next leap. Interesting. So I talk a lot about being on the right ladder, which, you know, if you're doing a job that has nothing to do with what you went to college for, it has nothing to do with what you're really interested in, you have been kind of stuck here for a while, this is a great economy to decide that you're going to get out of that and try to get on the right ladder. By that, I mean you either get into a company that is the kind of company you'd like to work for long term, or it does exactly what it is you'd like to do when you grow up and you want to get on the right ladder in a company that actually could bring you along where you want to go. And I just think people don't think strategically enough about how they hop. And I always say, you know, everybody, whether you have a job or not, it's like you're self-employed. You work for yourself. You are your only representative. And so in order for you to go to that next place, you really have to think about yourself as an, you know, an entrepreneur and a marketing agent of one. Yeah, we're all free agents these days. That's right. Because, you know, companies don't keep people for 30 years anymore. And frankly, mm-hmm. employees don't want to stay for 30 years anymore. So don't act like you're staying there for 30 years. I noticed that on, the, on your book cover, you put, the, you put the red handbag and you mentioned the 80 cents to the dollar stat earlier uh, in, in, our, in our conversation. What advice can you give to women when they're negotiating uh, a compensation for, or, or salary or something like that, that uh, perhaps they need to hear that, uh, you know, that, that men perhaps already know? So maybe, maybe one they of the don't. things is, you know, asking for what you need. The second thing is you should look at your current base salary, what roles and responsibilities you're going to take on with the change, and then what makes it worth it for you to jump. And so what you need to know is most employers get into this rhythm of, you know, 3% increases, blah, 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 and all of this. So in order to make a hefty move in pay, often you have to change roles or change companies or both. So you want to make sure that you don't blow that opportunity. Let me ask you this. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Uh, I always was told uh, if they say, well, uh, you say, say what you want. When uh, when I've been asked over the years, well, what are are your salary requirements? I always say, I'm not going to give you the first number. You, you give me a range and you give the first number because you're, it's like throwing, you know, like with a blindfold at a dartboard, you don't have any reference and don't know what they're thinking. And I try and force that. Um, Is that a mistake? I'm not sure I would say that it's a mistake. I would say that a better option would be to have some idea about what the role you would do is paying in the industry on average. Okay. There's just so much better information out there than there was maybe 10 years ago. So I, you know, I referenced Glassdoor a little earlier. 
But there are a lot of sites out there that will tell you what the median, in for, median income is for the role that you're looking at. And then what I would say to you is, depending upon your skill set, you're either at the bottom of that range, the medium of that range, or the high of that range. And you should quote accordingly, because they're actually expecting for you to be in that range. And you don't want to quote yourself too low, because you know, if they'll anything, pay you less. Well, the, not I'm only sure they'll, they will. They'll, they'll either pay you less, or actually, I, I would look at that and kind of say, well, this person really doesn't have a lot of confidence in their skills and abilities if they don't think that they're worth, you know, what they're really worth, so or what the job is worth. So yeah, that actually then works to your detriment in two different ways, I think. Yeah, I think once you start thinking about yourself as worth less, your employer will think so too. I agree with that. Yeah, I was going to say the the um. The financial aptitude. Let's say I'm going to do my impression of you, KT. Here it comes. So we have listeners who are listening to this going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like your daughter, right? <laughs> what are the other ways that having a better financial aptitude can apply to the job for managers and our listeners um, beyond just, you know, getting, getting the job, like within the job? So one of the things about moving up within a company is being willing to stretch a little and try some different roles with the idea that you're working on growing the lines of your resume, but you're also creating something that your employer can use as a way to get you more compensation or that next option. So just going in and doing your job every day, if that's all you really want to do in your career, never do anything more than the job you're doing and get paid basically, you know, ingested for inflation what you're making today, then okay, show up at nine and leave at five and never take the opportunity to try something new, never stretch, never travel. Um, but what I would say to you is most of us, that's not what we want. We want, if we want a career and we're not just looking for a paycheck, then what we want to also do is stretch as human beings and grow professionally. And so I would be out there saying, you know, what could I do to become a little bit more valuable to you and then ultimately, either you're going to recognize that and pay me, or the next company will. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's great advice. I think the other thing that I, that I think about is I see all kinds of people that who might be having financial difficulties at home, that, that bleeds over into, into the work performance. Oh, yeah. The other thing is it's actually not your boss's fault. Mm. You know, like personal, personal things that are happening in your life. You know, like we've all worked in offices with people where you know, there are people that things could be going on in their life and you would never know. Mm -hmm. right. Then there are people where you actually know that their breakfast fell into the sink this morning. I mean, you know everything about them. <laughs> and I I'm not saying that you really want to be the person no one knows anything about, but you definitely don't want to be that person that's an oversharer at work because you come off as being a little bit more needy and a little bit less having the initiative and so, you know, if your relationship's not going well, or if you are struggling to pay your bills, then that's actually not on your employer. That's maybe something that you don't bring to the workplace every day. That's what friends are for. That's what relatives are for. And try to leave that stuff out of the workplace. I mean, it's not that you're going to be a robot. It's that you have to understand how other people perceive you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like he's a hot mess. You know, you don't want people to think that. Yeah, I don't want them to think, you know, I mean, somebody that's, you know, um, upset all the time or somebody that's, you know, having confrontations at work all the time. That person becomes less promotable even when they're right. Mm -hmm. 
One of the other things you talk about is hiring candidates and how to look for the right person and find the role and identify the right role for the candidate. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about that piece of your thinking. Oh, and specifically, what role does financial aptitude play in, in the hiring process? Well, how is that important and why? So first, I would say that, you know, when I'm looking to hire someone, I'm looking for the right person that's going to be a good fit. My business is a small business. You know, we employ seven people. It's kind of a you know, it's 1,800 square feet. There's a lot of togetherness going on in an office that size. And what I find is in a small business, uh, people can get a little petty because mm -hmm. you do know each other really well and you do spend a tremendous amount of time with the same small group of people. So I'm always looking for someone, you know, we recently added somebody to our staff. We're looking for somebody that can come in. You know, they have to be competent. They have to you know, they have to have all the right ABCs. They have to be smart enough to be in our business. We're in the money business. So you have to have a clean background and you have to be able to do math in your head. And, you know, so it weeds out a lot of people right away. But when you get down to that other core group, one is, you know, how well do they interact with others? Mm -hmm. And so for, for me, one of the things I look for is the person first. I'm looking for that person with the right, not only professional skills, but social skills. And the reason why I brought up the financial aptitude, KT, was because we see so many people that want to come in and they demand a $10,000 raise or something like that. And they don't really understand how money works about how, how the company, you know, how much money the company actually needs to make to be able to give you a $10,000 raise. We had Michael Houlihan on, yeah, on the show earlier. Barefoot wines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talking about the money map and everything like that. And, and we, see that, we see that every day. And so I think the financial aptitude is kind of important. Oh, I think so too. I mean, that's why I always say, you know, like I'm setting my daughter to Glassdoor. I'm like, I want you to have a reality check about the kind of work you do and what that actually pays. And I personally think if you haven't looked at that professionally, you know, you should be looking at that in college. Exactly. You know, should you be spending $60,000 a year for college if you're going to come out of college into the kind of job where you're going to make $40,000 a year. Radio broadcasting. Is, well, <laughs> I made a huge I made that mistake once. Yeah. <laughs> no and, cop to and that. Actually, yeah. And a lot of people do. They, yeah. they have these big ideas that they can figure it out later on and that it's all going to work. What they need is the right school or the right experience. And the reality is it's just not true. Social yeah. workers make what social workers make. Asset managers make what they make. Lawyers well, they can be all over the map. It really mm -hmm. depends upon what they Your actually specialty. do. Specialty, yep. Yeah, I, I switched specialty. my major like a quarter in a after I found out what, what the, my major actually made in real money. Now. Right, right. I mean, you <laughs> need to decide if you're going to do the, you know, the quote, good work. You need to understand that you should go to state school and you should save your money because you're not going to have it to pay. What's the perennial joke? The underwater ba basket weaving degree, you know. That's right. <laughs> will get me my, my six figures. That's um, right. We have just a few minutes left. You have some uh, top habits of, you know, smart professional women in terms of finances. Well, give us a couple as our party. So one of the things that is, it's they're always willing to learn, meaning that it really doesn't matter how you learn, right? It's not that you're going to sit down and read big finance books. I mean, frankly, I do that, but I'm in this business, so I really kind of have to. But what they do is they open themselves up to learn, whether they decide to read. Um, I think today, like, podcasts are the world of, uh, you know, drive time financial advice. That's how I launched my show, was the idea is learn something good about money. You know, 
25 minutes on your way to work. It doesn't have to be cumbersome. But the idea that they're always willing to learn, that curious mind about money, being willing to like open the statement and read it, things like that. You don't have to go through and do a deep dive of all your finances all the time. And you don't have to track every penny that you ever spent on anything. But what you have to be willing to is inspect the things that you think you know periodically, whether that's you know once a year or twice a year. And you have to be willing to just do a little research. Yeah. It's a topic you could never know enough about, I think, is the thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. So the book is, everybody, The Hardworking Woman's Guide to Money. KT's podcast is KT's Money Matters. The website, ktsmoneymatters.com. And then you do speaking. And um, can I give Jane's email out if you folks want to? Okay, so it's Jane, it's J-A-Y-N-E at ktsmoneymatters.com. And can we might give the phone number um, if you'd like to book KT? Absolutely. 603-758-1076. And KT, uh, before we go, you had mentioned that this is your first book. What do you have in mind for the future? So I'm actually doing research on a mystery book surrounded around the death of an investment banker in a cryptocurrency conspiracy, just because I think it'll be so fun. What do you do for research on that? So right now I'm reading a whole bunch about cryptocurrency, and I'm also listening to the Bad Cryptocurrency Guys podcasts. Wow. So When's that coming out? So I'm I'm just in the beginning work, so it's it's probably a year and a half from now. Awesome. Before but we, I thought I would write like a, you know, some kind of slant with a big, you know, I, whatever, my version of the lawyer book where they have some crime and they have, you know, the lawyer. Yeah, yeah Tom Clayton. Yeah, have the, you know. Yeah, totally. Money girl. That that makes sense. What, what <laughs> you're mentioning cryptocurrency before we go is like, is that a good idea? I would say for most people, not yet, but okay. I would argue that ten years from now, it'll be something probably everybody does. Yeah, a lot of legislation needs to happen with that. <laughs> so, yeah. KT, thanks again. Such a pleasure having you on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.